Let's talk about the real world for a moment, shall we? Where you're not some wonderful lone wolf hero, but you're part of a team and you play your position because that's what America is, Mr. Jeffries. It's one big team. Now, this might be difficult for you to grasp, but I am a patriot. And a patriot is one who makes the right moral choice. Sometimes it takes a strong man to make that choice. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And if you missed any of the live broadcast, you can catch us on the podcasting platforms. We'll be available on iTunes and, of course, on Spreaker, but also on Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and also on Spotify. If you listen to your music on Spotify, just type in 21st Century Wire or Sunday Wire, and you'll see our shows there as well. Now, our last guest, a fantastic interview with George Samueli uh, about Iran and about the U.S.'s role in that foreign policy debacle that's sort of shaping up to be at the moment. But now we're going to go domestic in the United States. And if anybody watched the news, it was quite a spectacle this week. Uh, I never thought I'd see it, but it looked like the NBA basketball draft lottery, but only it was on CNN. And they were drawing uh, lots for the Democratic uh, debate, which is coming up on Tuesday uh, and Wednesday night at the end of July. And I'm getting a little bit confused about where things are going on this side of the aisle. That's why we've invited special guests this week. He is a political activist, but he's also an independent journalist, and he's the host of the radio show Mikasa Sukasa. And his name is Nico House, and I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with his work who listen to this show. But uh, we're welcoming him this week on the Sunday Wire. Hello, Nico. Hey, Patrick, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Uh, great to have you, Nico. And I just, right out of the gates, Nico, what is happening with these Democratic primaries coming up? The nomination uh, field seems to be growing by the week. Uh, I'm having trouble keeping up with it. And they've even had to split the debates into two nights and having a lottery to draw lots as to who's going to be on what night. I, I never thought I would see this in U.S. politics, that they would turn the draw, like the lotto, <laughs> looks like um, the Powerball, it looks like CNN Powerball, and turn this into a, a phenomenon when we should be talking about other things that are more important, looking at the issues. It seems to me, Nico, that the media has just found a new a new cash cow here, a new spectacle to promote. What do you what do you think about all this? Well, it is a spectacle, and I find it, it, find it ironic that you liken it to the NBA uh, lot draft lottery, considering that everybody knows the NBA draft lottery is rigged at this point. And so I'm sure that, you know, people probably feel the same way about the Democratic primary debates. You know, it seems that they're keeping certain people away from each other, that they are grouping certain people together, um, protecting others and things like that, uh, and also keeping other people off the debate stage like Mike Gravel. But I don't want anybody to think that it's coincidence that they have this many people debating. People have to remember that the DNC did change their rules last year. Uh, Bernie Sanders' Unity Commission uh, allowed uh, or, or fought to end up making sure that superdelegates can't vote or have any say until the second round of delegate voting if it goes to a second round. So in other words, if someone does not get 50% of unpledged delegates. And so to win delegates in a particular state, you only have to get 15% of the vote in that particular state. So what you do to stop somebody from like, I don't know, Bernie Sanders, 
from winning, you know he has a name recognition, you know he has the money, you know he has the volunteers, you know he has, I mean, he's full steam steam ahead right now. And so you get people that you don't expect to actually be able to beat him in a one-on-one situation. However, if they stay in the race long enough, hence, this is what people don't realize, this is why California moved the Democratic primary up. Because you get Kamala, she's not going to win California. Bernie is. Uh, but she's going to win at least 15%. And hell, even um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren may be able to get 15% there. So those delegates are now in Kamala's pocket to hand off to whoever she so chooses at the Democratic National Convention. Um, same thing with uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Bill de Blasio in New York. They can hand those delegates off to whoever they so mention. Minnesota's a big state in the Democratic primary. Uh, last time it went handedly to Bernie, however, may not go that way this time with Amy Klobuchar if she gets 15% of the delegates. So all they have to do at that point is pull their delegates, not necessarily to beat Bernie in the first round of the convention, but to stop him from getting 50%. And so having this many candidates in muddies the waters. They all have, if you've noticed, have been stealing his message. Uh, And it's interesting that really the only one, they're trying to make Elizabeth Warren the heir apparent to Bernie, right? But the only one that even comes close to Bernie is Tulsi. And of course, the one that they're smearing the most, but supposedly has the least amount of traction is Tulsi. But they're treating her as if she's, you know, as if she's Bernie, like she's the number, like in, in first place right now. But she's only at two, three percent in the polls. So that lets you know that there's clearly some more uh, nefarious intentions going on behind the scenes. And it is a strategy. People shouldn't mistake that. So, so you're you're saying, uh, Nico, that this is potentially at the DN at a DNC level, or is it higher than a DNC level strategy that to kind of flood flood the field with all of these uh, candidates? This is like a grand national horse race where you have thirty five horses running well, in one the, race. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so it's a DNC strategy. Somebody else, the the bigger donors are definitely in charge. You know, pulling the strings there, uh, but people shouldn't make any mistake that is is definitely a strategy. And it's a strategy that I actually called out um, maybe 2017 when I saw the Unity Commission put together because all the excuses that they used to justify um, and and belittle the the cheating that Hillary did, they were like, oh, no, 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 you know, it's because she had name recognition. That was why. Or she had all this money. That was why. Because she's been in politics for 20 years and everybody knew her face. That was why. You can't play that game this time because none of them have more name recognition than Bernie. He's He's like probably the first or second most popular politician in the world at this point. And so you saw Cory Booker constantly staying in front of the camera, right? Kamala being constantly propped up out of nowhere. She was a freshman senator, and she's being constantly propped up as if she's been in the game five to ten years. Um, and that was her—2017 was really her first full year. And then she jumps right into the presidential run. Then you have people who you, like Kirsten Gillibrand, all of a sudden in 2017 became progressive when her record was atrocious, before she uh, be- before she became New York senator. So it's you saw people making this really big transition out of nowhere, and they kept throwing their names in front of the television screen. When you have, how, what, 400 members of, of the House, 100 members of the Senate or so, why are you picking these particular people? And it was clear that they were trying to set the stage for them to all have a viable chance of winning the presidency or at least taking enough delegates away from Bernie that they can then make it past the first round, go to the second round in which the superdelegates would be able to pick the Democratic nominee. And so also t- tell us about your uh, your role. I know you were influ- influential in kind of uh, bringing the uh, DNC lawsuit up to the surface to kind of expose 
some of these sort of activities at that, that organization level that, frankly, don't, don't look like they were fair yeah. on the face of it. But just t- tell us how you how you became involved in that and what, what you learned from that process. So um, I, at, in, at college, I was actually the acting state director for, for Bernie Sanders' campaign. I was also the president of Carolina Students for Bernie Sanders, and I was also the president for North Carolina Colleges for Bernie Sanders. And so I was pretty involved in the campaign and the general politics of North Carolina. And um, we basically caught the state director uh, trying to blackball Bernie, keep the black community away from him, uh, trying to blackball me, blackball schools organization. I mean, it was was bad and it was obvious and I caught them red-handed. And so eventually I ended up, uh, uh, long story short, I met up with Liz and Jared, who are two fantastic attorneys. One is a Harvard graduate and the other is a Yale grad. Um, have had some pretty successful cases, successfully sued Kim Kardashian over their makeup and won. So they, so they knew their stuff. They, they heard me out. They asked me if I had a plan. I said, well, this is what I think we can do. Because after I, I spent, I mean, days and days and days researching what the best way to go about it is. Because I knew that it was too late, right, to, to change the outcome. But I did know that it wasn't too late to shine the brightest light that we could on it to make sure that the DNC is put on notice. And also to get some retribution for the people who did put those volunteer hours in, who did put their money in, because it wasn't about winning or losing. Uh, Even if Bernie won, the case would still be valid because they shouldn't have been trying to cheat to begin with. Um, And so we end up coming up with the idea for the DNC fraud lawsuit, which right now is in the 11th Circuit Federal Appellate Court. And and we went through the appeals process. We are in the last stage of the appeals process. We're just waiting to hear what arguments we will be allowed to make, what classes we will be arguing for, and then we'll go into the discovery. Uh, and so we should be actually hearing back from the 11th Circuit Court here pretty soon. Wow, that's uh, that, that that could be very very revealing. Uh, the the results of that certainly, I I think it would have an overall positive impact on just transparency and just how things are done uh, in oh, the electoral and, pr- process. Yeah, absolutely. Because everybody in those emails, it's already been uh, uh, proven. And, and, and Elizabeth Lee Voss was actually the one who kept, caught me up on the fact that. WikiLeaks have been used in courts like four over 400 times or something like that. It's, it's crazy, but they've always been administered in multiple countries and they've always been deemed valid. And so because of all the names that appear in these emails that WikiLeaks was able to put out, you're going to see Obama get questioned, Debbie Washington Schultz get questioned, Donna Brasile get questioned, Hillary Clinton potentially getting questioned. Everybody who was involved in the rigging process uh, or anybody who talked to anybody who was involved in the rigging process. But Tulsi is going to have to, you know, talk about why she felt it was so necessary for her to leave the vice chair position at the DNC because of what they were doing to Bernie Sanders. All these things are going to come into light. So regardless of the outcome of the case, as long as we can get into the discovery stage, it will really expose the DNC for what they are. Yeah, and and uh, I, I think that's uh, so obviously you're you're on the side of, uh, of transparency. Your views on WikiLeaks are public. You're you're supporting the Julian Assange issue uh, quite vocally, as is uh, Tulsi Gabbard, and she's a candidate that you're absolutely uh, championing. And uh, just just to compare some of the DNC um, or some of the Democratic field here, I mean, I'm running through these names, Nico, and I'm, I admit I don't know who I've never heard of half of these people. Steve Bollock, uh, I never heard of before last week. One. He's Pe- the one that kept Mike, Mike Gravel off stage. It, yeah, and Mike Gravel did do what he was uh, required. He qu- yep. And what, what, what happened? What is the explanation for this? There really isn't one. They came up with the excuse that they're going to pre- uh, pre- preference polling over the individual donations. 
which is absolutely absurd because he actually qualified in three polls uh, a couple of weeks ago. But then for the for this debate, they changed it and said, oh, well, we're going to do these three polls and then just kept him completely off of the polling process. So he didn't even get a chance to, to requalify via the polls. And so they're like, oh, well, uh, this guy, Steve, he, he qualified via polling. Who the hell is he? I don't even know who he is. I'm not even joking. Like when I read his name, I had no idea who this man was. And he somehow managed to get one percent in the nation. I don't know. I, was, is he is he Sandra's husband? I mean, I don't know who he is. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so Pete Buttigieg, I never heard of before last month or two months ago. John Delaney. Sorry, I don't know who he is. Never heard of him. Uh, a- a- Amy Klobuchar. I have trouble pronouncing her last name, uh, but she's I've never heard of her before a few months ago. John Hickenlooper. I don't follow corporate news about Starbucks or whatever, so I don't know. Beto O'Rourke, I've heard of. Tim Ryan, I've, I've, I know of. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course. Elizabeth Warren, of course. Marion Williamson, no idea who she is. Michael Bennett. Don't really know. Biden, of course. Booker, yes. Uh, Julian Castro, I hadn't heard of, but actually I was quite impressed with him uh, and his uh, his skills and his knowledge is, is quite impressive. Bill de Blasio, uh, I think he's just looking for, a, he's a career politician, looking for to step up to the next level, I'm not sure. Kirsten Gilderbrand. Kirsten Gilderbrand, I don't rate her as a, as, a, as a national leader candidate. Kamala Harris, you've already outlined the phenomenon there. Uh, Jay Inslee, never really heard of him, although he's a governor of a state of Washington, so at least he's got he's a governor. Uh, Andrew Yang, uh, he seems to have done a good job getting his name out, and he's quite popular with uh, the millennial crowd as well. And, of course, Tulsi Gabbard, yeah, uh, we all uh, know. Andrew started a campaign like two years ago or a year ago, like very, very early. That's how he's yeah, jumping up yeah. ahead in, in New Hampshire and Iowa pretty quick because he's been there for, for quite some time. Yeah, so – so so looking at the only two, there's only one candidate here that's going to draw big crowds, and that's probably Bernie Sanders. There, there's no one else that can draw really by themselves no without crowd? the help no. of the media. No, it's there's nobody. So so then in terms of my preferences, I'm looking at – I prefer I, – I do like Tulsi Gabbard on the foreign policy side. She seems to be credible, strong. She's clear. She's got a great background and her, you know, her legislative record is is the most proactive of anybody, maybe in all of in all of Congress, actually, uh, in doing really important, really important legislative efforts to stop funding terrorism, etc. I mean, very much a transformational candidate there more than Bernie Sanders, actually, I I don't I see Bernie's to me very weak on foreign policy. That's just my opinion. Well, that's actually his opinion, too. That's actually his opinion. He admitted it during a town hall that he is weakest on foreign policy, and it's something that he needs to reconcile. What do you What do you see that? I mean, I think if the media got behind someone like Gabbard, uh, if they favored her, not that that seems like it's going to happen, but you imagine she could very easily easily be a, a top run candidate against uh, Trump uh, in a general election. I can totally see her trading blows with Trump and <clears throat> and staying on her feet as well. I don't. It would be an obliteration if if Tulsi ever gotten this on the same debate stage as Trump. You have to remember, Tulsi was the person who convinced Trump to pull the CIA out of Syria the first time before that false flag missile attack that happened in, what, October, September of 2017? People forget that right Mm -hmm. before that, remember, Trump pulled the CIA out, and that's why they did the false flag operation to convince Trump to pull them back in. Now, in that timeline, 
Tulsi was in the Oval Office with Trump. She pulled the CIA out. Uh, Steve Bannon actually liked Tulsi because she's an anti-interventionist. Um, and then whenever the false flag happened and then we launched on uh, Syria, Steve Bannon left. Tulsi was never invited back to the Oval Office again. And then you started seeing the administration being basically flooded with war hawks like Bolton, like yes. Mattis, like Pompeo, because that's how much that is how scared the establishment is of Tulsi, because she not only because people really mistake her for for only being good on foreign policy. But it seemed that way because she's the only one who was good on foreign policy. But on the domestic side, she's also the only one that would discuss election integrity, because how are we going to get any of these policies passed unless we can get progressives in office to do so? And, and right now, yeah, it's cool having Rashida Tlaib. AOC is kind of and I love Ilan. I like Ayanna Presley, but uh, I even like uh, Representative J-Pow. But that's like five or six votes, <laughs> you know, how, and, and there are a lot of progressives like Tim Canova who should be in office right now. We know that Debbie Washington Schultz cheated, and yet, I mean, got cheated in broad daylight, got caught, got caught in court. The only thing they did was give Tim Canova a $200,000 settlement and said, have a nice day. And that's a, she broke federal laws. And so until we see election integrity dealt with, a lot of these conversations are moot. And the thing is, Tulsi is the only one willing to have that conversation, even though we know it was Bernie who got cheated. So that's also something that gets her a leg up. And then climate change is a big deal uh, for me. Uh, it's, it's, and it's a big deal probably in a different way than most progressives. I'm actually in the camp of climate change is going to happen regardless. And I feel like we're having the wrong conversation because I feel like corporations are steering the conversation one way or the other. And it should be what is this? Whether, it shouldn't be whether or not climate change is or is not going to happen, whether we can or can't prevent it. I feel like that's a little bit audacious of humanity. I think that it should be it's here. It's happening. Now, let's introduce solutions to, uh, you know, to prevent certain catastrophic events from happening and prepare people for it rather than going back and forth about whether or not it's going to happen, because it is already here and it's already happening. Uh, same thing with the environment. We need to take care of our environment. And Tulsi Gabbard has the OFF Act, which is the All Fossil Fuels Act, which allows us to do just that. From an economic perspective, the All Fossil Fuels Act gets us out of the pockets of Saudi Arabia. And people don't think about that. They don't think about the economic impacts of these things and what that means for the military industrial complex. It stops us from constantly having to hound uh, Iran. If Iran wants to do their own thing with fossil fuels, that's fine. It's, we, we can transition into renewable energy right now and we can control our energy. But the thing is, corporations in their current state are not exactly set up to control the industry, the renewable energy, energy industry, like they want, just like the marijuana industry. So they're trying to incrementally transition so that they can take control of those industries, just like they did with the oil and, and gas industry. And so, because we, we already, we, we, we make 90% of our own oil now, 93% with fracking, you know, but we keep, we, but the thing is, like I said, it's a slow transition because they, if we transition to renewable energy right now, you and I could start a small business in our hometown and play, people like Exxon and BP and these things wouldn't be able to, to take over like they would want to. So that's, like I said, it's the same thing with the marijuana industry. So with, with Tulsi Gabbard's off act, all of a sudden you start seeing these major transitions, uh, but not only transitions when it comes to climate change and those type of policies, 
but power transitions around the world. And that's something big that people don't think about. Like what you said about Tulsa is 100% true. She is a truly a transformative once in a, really once in a lifetime. I truly believe um, that she would probably be the best president in the history of this country. Looking at her positions, and she reminds me a lot of the Ron Paul uh, campaign that, that really caught fire in, in 2008 and 2012 with a lot of young people coming behind that. And so she has some similarities on, to, to the Ron Paul platform in terms of foreign policy and interventionism, which is very popular with uh, young people and older people as well. It's, it's, there's an unsilent majority that's building in America on that issue. Of course, Donald Trump surfed that, that wave right into the White House, practically. Yep. Uh, but uh, the, challenge is, the challenge is once you get into power, whether you can withstand the pressure from all directions the pressure, to not the do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the media, I, I think, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are, Nico, but if, if Tulsi was to build up a, a great campaign and to sort of get momentum into going towards the White House, do you think she would be given the Trump treatment in how the media have cornered him, how the establishment have come at him I'm gonna tell you a in secret. different ways? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to tell you a secret. We're hoping for it. We're hoping yeah. she gets the Trump treatment. Because if she gets that close to the White House and she gets that, that Trump treatment, it'll guarantee her a spot in that White House. And that's the difference. The thing is, Trump pretended like he had all the answers when he knew he really didn't have any of them. Tulsi's been there. She's been part of the establishment. She chose to leave. Tulsi's been deployed. She's still an active duty National Guardsman. Uh, She's a major right now, an MP. She used to be uh, a medic. And so and she's been deployed twice. She's she's seen battle. She doesn't have to listen to generals that she knows are not acting within her best interests or the interests of the American people. Whenever, like, she was one of the few. Her and Rand Paul were like, mm, I don't know about that Syrian chemical attack. We need to uh, investigate that a little bit further before we just start launching missiles and calling people war criminals. And guess who the two that were right? Rand Paul and Tulsi. They were the ones who scrutinized it, and she was right. She also predicted a month in advance that the Trump administration would try and manufacture consent in some way for a faction for us to go to war with Iran. That interview that she did with uh, George Stephanopoulos on ABC was taken down after that tanker was attacked. And I luckily found a clip of it and I did a screen grab of it so that I didn't lose that clip also. But they took that interview down because she literally said, I don't buy anything coming out of the administration when it comes to Iran. They're just trying to create uh, a reason to go to war. Yes, so and she and she was right. She literally they tried to lie about a tanker just so we can go, and we almost went to World War Three within a week. Yeah, and she, by the way, she would be the first um, if she if she was successful uh, in in getting her nomination and, and getting elected. She'd be the first U.S. president with uh, military experience since George H. W. Bush. That was thirty years ago. Uh, so that's how long it's been since uh, you, we've had a U.S. president with any military uh, experience. So that would be a novelty. Of sorts, <laughs> yeah. Well, modern that, times, has the right time so experience because it's a different, like you can have like what people. The thing about Bernie is is Bernie. They say well, he's the most experienced, but not every not all experience is good experience. Bernie has made a lot of bad decisions as a senator. He voted for um, Desert Storm. He voted for covert operations in Syria. He voted for uh, uh, to bomb Gaza. He vo- I mean, he he voted for sanctions on Russia because of the Russia Gate nonsense. So. And the reason why is because he blindly believes who? Like most people in Congress. Oh, the intelligence community, right? Why would they ever lie? 
they're, they're, they never do anything wrong. We have no reason to distrust the CIA because they've always been completely honest. Nobody believes that anymore, but he does. He generally believes the CIA unless it's an extreme circumstance like Iraq where it's like, okay, bro, you're, this doesn't even make any sense. And that's his main problem is that he's kind of naive in that regard. Tulsi, on the other hand, you know, she she might have gotten tricked once, but she didn't get tricked again. She's like, uh-uh, I don't believe this. This is nonsense. And in her opening speech for her campaign launch, the main thing, the first thing that she talked about as far as the military-industrial complex is addressing the corrupt intelligence agencies. She's the only presidential candidate that has said something like that, um, you know, serious presidential candidate that has said something like that, uh, other than Mike Gravel, maybe, since JFK. And she would be the only president if she won to talk about and deal with addressing the corrupt intelligence community, which also obviously you, you start to fear a little bit for her life in that regard, because we know what that means. And we know what happened with JFK. The good thing is because she's so explicit about it and JFK was kind of like tentative because he didn't want to be laughed at or mocked uh, or look like he didn't have control over his government. Tulsi is very straight up about it. Like, no, you, you guys got to get taken care of. And so it, she understands the root causes of the problems that we have both uh, overseas and here in the States. And when you understand the roots of those problems, then you're best, in my opinion, you're best equipped to, to find solutions for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the sort of thing you want to hear from someone leading a country like the United States. Certainly the world wants to see that from U.S. leadership. Uh, that would be a big break from what we're used to. But just a final thoughts, uh, Nico, I want to get your opinion on uh, a twofold uh, final thoughts on this issue. We look at the size of the Democratic field uh, so far and, you know, the, the pundits on the left, on the, the CNNs of the world, they, they're, they're absolutely crowing about, oh, what an impressive array of talent uh, on the Democratic side. But, you know, I see this differently, Nico. I see it as that they have no focus. Uh, they're not focused on issues. They're focused on this uh coalition of personalities yeah it is it's, it's in a cult of personality they're not focusing on the issues remember my friend said man it seems like they're more worried about undocumented immigrants than um than and it's and it's i say it's not a surprise people you know if you don't understand history do you think this is new undocumented immigrants has always been a hot topic hot topic for democrats because it's always served as a useful distraction they don't want to find comprehensive they don't want to have a comprehensive immigration reform then they have nothing to complain about you know like, yeah. when does Nancy Pelosi yeah. introduce comprehensive immigration? They talking about getting kids out of cages. How about let's not make let's make sure they don't end up there to begin with. And the Democrats uh, are just as responsible for this as the Republicans are. And, and so they're not focusing on solutions. They're focusing on the problem and then asking stupid questions like, do you believe kids shouldn't be in cages? Why? Yes, I do. That's why I think I should be president of the United States. What? Like, no, I want to know why you haven't introduced comprehensive immigration reform. Tulsi has actually been trying to do this a lot. And every time she goes to the Democrats to try and do so, they ignore her, which lets you yeah. know that they don't really want to, you know, they don't want to find solutions. And in my opinion, after watching the debates, I actually got a little worried for our country. I'm like, holy crap, our country is ran by morons. <laughs> like, yeah. that's what I. Well, you know. A lot of people are thinking that, but um, on the last point, the last point, I want to get your opinion. You know, we know that the upper echelons of the DNC do not like leaving it to the to the public. Don't want to leave the decision to the plebs of deciding who's going to be running for president. So, who do you think is the, is the is the establishment's uh, uh, choice ticket on the Democratic Party side? Who do you think they're lining Very their cute. ducks up? 
with there too. So it's Kamala for the entire establishment, um, and it's Elizabeth Warren for the DNC. Uh, the DNC knows that she's been able to trick people into believing that she's actually progressive. And they've been trying to, I'm sure you heard the questions that were being asked. Well, you know, Elizabeth Warren stands with Bernie Sanders on this issue, trying to basically say that she's the female version of Bernie Sanders so that she can still cool all the, uh, all the, the Hillary votes, but try and steal some progressive votes from Bernie. Now, the establishment, the Hamptons establishment, as we like to call them, uh, put Kamala, brought Kamala to the Hamptons and did a fundraiser for her. It was all of Hillary's people. Kamala has all of Hillary's team. This is, this is the continuation of what Hillary Clinton was supposed to be. Uh, Kamala's sister, Maya, was Hillary's top three advisor for her campaign. And she also worked for Center for American Progress, which is owned by John Podesta, who was the chief of staff for the Obama administration, was going to be the chief of staff for, uh, for Hillary's administration. And so that is my bet on who the establishment wants, but the DNC feels like Elizabeth Warren is a safer bet. And um, I would say Elizabeth Warren's probably a safer bet, but neither of them can beat Trump, to be completely honest with you. We, if, if they win, then we better just go back to the drawing board because I don't see, I mean, I don't, I don't want either. Of, I think Elizabeth Warren's dangerous. I think Kamala's very dangerous because uh, they're more susceptible to the, to the puppet matches of the military industrial complex than Trump is. Uh, if either of them were in office when that Iran thing sparked off, uh, we would be in World War III right now. I do believe that. So that's the one bit of credit I will give Trump is that he called Tucker Carlson, apparently, and Tucker Carlson told him not to go to war. And he listened. <laughs> That's amazing. If you, if you call somebody from, you call Jake Tapper, what's Jake Tapper going to tell you? Press the button. Press the button. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you call Wolf Blitzer, he's going to say, where do we need to send the cameras to? Yeah, uh, exactly. we're ready to go. We're ready to go. But uh, that's that's interesting. I always said to people, Nico, I said, is there anybody uh, that the establishment's putting forward in the Democratic side that's stronger than Hillary was in 2016? And the answer is uh, no, with an exception of probably uh, the ones in the background, like Bernie Sanders, etc., have a, a better shot than any of these front runners. So that means we might get the same result that uh, you got in 2016. It's looking, it's looking more and more like it. If we don't, once I think once the debate start winding down, we'll be able to get a bigger, bigger picture. In September, you'll see only about six candidates left. Five or six candidates will be left. And I think if that happens, and Tulsi is looking like she is going to qualify for that third debate, and if that happens, you actually might see the field get flipped upside down. Um, yes. And that's yeah. because she does have that Trump effect. And there are 35 or 37 either open primary or semi-open primary states. And that's those states are wide open where these where the Democrats can't really rig it the way they want to. People forget there was a period where Bernie was just whooping on Hillary state after state after state. Those are those open and semi open primary states. And they don't have a Trump to vote for this time. Right. Trump is probably the walk off home run for the nominee at this point for the Republican Party. So they're like, well, let me see who makes the most sense. For the Democrats, since I have to since I have to vote anyway for that office or, you know, so but where you get the option to vote for that office anyway. And Trump already has a Republican nomination. People, the rational people are still going to be like, well, let me see who's the best one. And a lot of them say Tulsi. If you go to a Fox News YouTube video, and look at the comments for Tulsi. Oh, my God. It's it's nothing but love and adoration for her. people like, man, it's a good thing. She's not one of those lefty, crazy Democrats. And everybody's like, oh, man, we don't want to break your heart. But uh, she is a Democrat. <laughs> but they don't know because she's yeah. common sense, you know. People always say we're told it's common sense 2020. So, <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, it could shape up that way. It could shape up that way. Certainly, that would make a more interesting 2020 race. Uh, that would definitely be an interesting historic race if that was the case. So uh, it'll it'll be interesting going forward. But we want to thank you for your time this week, Nico. Uh, Nico no, House, and uh, just give us a shout out where where we can find your work, Nico. If anybody listening, so you can find me on YouTube at the MCSC Network with Nico House. You can also find me on Twitter. At Nico N I K O C S is in Sam F as in Frank B, so C S F B on Twitter. You can also find me on Facebook as well, just Nico uh, House. We've got a link to your uh, your Facebook page uh, on the show page now, so you can also see uh, some videos and also his broadcasts as well. So if you want to know what's going on on this side of the of the ticket in the U.S. 2020 cycle i think you should just keep an eye on what nico's putting out and you'll pretty much have your finger uh mostly on the pulse i think so but uh thank you so much nico really yeah, appreciate you. it appreciate it guys all right there he goes ladies and gentlemen that's nico house uh, we're going to take a very short station break and come back with our final thoughts this week on the sunday wire i'm your host patrick henningson stick around we'll be right back 